I did a non-zero amount of programming this week. I'm so excited. Well, I forgot to tell you that we were going to spend this episode talking about the Super Bowl. <laughs> you mean Super Bowl LI? Yes, exactly. I refused to watch it out of principle because it didn't. It wasn't preceded by Super Bowl UL or Super Bowl OL. <laughs> nice job. That's it. You just killed all conversation. That's good. Super Bowl conversation's <laughs> over. Good job. <laughs> Hey, Sean. Hi, Derek. What's up? You did some programming this week. Tell me about it. So, so you know how MySQL is kind of bad, like just as a database? Um, yeah, I do. I want to stick up for MySQL, but I can't. So you know what's even worse than MySQL? Mm. MySQL's C API. Okay, some would say that's part of MySQL, but yes. Well, no, right. MySQL, the database, and the semantics of interfacing with MySQL as a programmer who may or may not be using their C API. That's that's one thing, right? But then the C API that's also developed by the same developers and it happens to live in the same repo as the server, mm-hmm. which actually isn't uncommon because I think libpq is also in the main Postgres repo along with Postgres actually has three different client interfaces that they ship, which is interesting. But, you know, like you could, in theory, just interface with MySQL using the wire protocol, which I might do because they're C API. <laughs> so what's the difference here? What's the wire protocol? Uh, so the wire protocol is the definition of the bytes, right? So when you're communicating with MySQL, data is being sent to and from the server, and that data is going to be in some sort of format. That makes sense. In theory, they could just not document that and say, if you want to interface with a MySQL server, you have to use this MySQL client, but they don't do that, nor does any database other than SQLite, as far as I know, and SQLite doesn't have a wire protocol because SQLite doesn't go over the wire because it's an embedded database. But every network-based database, as far as I know, has a documented wire protocol. So it's just the documentation of like, this is the the way that you go about communicating with the server from like a TCP point of view. Here are the exact bytes that you're going to send. And then these are the exact bytes that you're going to receive. And so the MySQL C API is then a library that they ship, which provides C functions that involve sending and receiving those bytes and communicating that to and from C. Although I'm not convinced that there's actually a lot of conversion happening that should be happening so just as as like an example first of all one of the things that just bothers me more than it should but my sequels wire protocol is little indian for network traffic that's endian en right not what indian. did i say but I, I'm, I'm saying that i you said could, indian yes you could perhaps mishear that and that means Sorry. basically the low order but that means the high order bytes come first i don't know i never know which so that means that one like the integer one, assuming a 32 bit integer, is the bytes one zero zero zero, whereas big endian would be zero 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 one. And there's pros and cons to both. The advocates of little endian would argue that little endian is better because truncating an integer is a no op, mm-hmm. uh, because the way you represent one as a 64 bit integer is the same as you represent one as a 32 bit integer, or at least the the, the bytes that you would save. Are mm-hmm. the same, regardless of what of your opinions on little or big endian. Big endian is also referred to as network endian because the IETF has universally agreed that just because this is a thing that we need to just pick one on, 
big endian is what's used for network traffic okay and so it, i had to introduce some code into diesel that's like and if it's my sequel do all of this as little endian and it bothered me yeah so but that's the wire protocol right i'm not using the wire protocol i'm using the c api so i shouldn't have to care about that but i'm, I'm and i need to just go source diving and find out if this is the case or not but i suspect that my sequel is not actually converting like it well the documentation never really says it one way or the other so there's conflicting documentation. So there's this place where you have a where you have a, a void star field, which for those who don't write C, void is the type that is not a type. Like it's not it's not equivalent to unit in functional languages. It's just literally the absence of a type. And so a void star is a pointer to nothing, which is kind of sort of the same actually as a pointer to unit in that it's a meaningless pointer, but not really. And basically it's used to say this is a pointer to stuff. Uh, usually when you see void star and C, what it actually means is uint H T star. Uint eight T is the only type in C that is guaranteed to be an eight byte integer, just unsigned eight byte thing. And usually a void star means this is an array of bytes. Like you're just gonna stick some arbitrary bytes here and I'm gonna interpret those bytes however I want to interpret them. Which is actually just kind of C in general, but in a specific case. So you have this void star where whatever data you're going to send over the wire for this field, you, you stick it there. And then whenever you have an, a corresponding void star in the same structure, but that you bind in a different place, where the data that you get back to the server goes back into that same void star. And there's sort of conflicting documentation. In some places, like, and these are the bytes that you're, you're going to get back from the server. Or more specifically, it documents when the value of bind.buffer type is MySQL field type long, you will receive four bytes. But then elsewhere in the documentation, it says when the value of buffer type is MySQL field type long, the corresponding C type behind this void star will be C int or signed int. Okay. And it's funny because there's sort of two conflicting things. One of those is correct because when, when it says MySQL field type long is four bytes, that is correct because long is the smallest type in C that is guaranteed to be at least four bytes. But then it says the C type, the corresponding C type is the C type int, which is not guaranteed to be four bytes. A, a C int is guaranteed to be at least two bytes, and it's guaranteed to be greater than or equal to the size of short and less than or equal to the size of long. Those two things combined with the fact that it's like also we're sending things as little endian over the wire, and most desktop computers are little endian machines, makes me think it's not actually doing anything to convert the bytes it receives over the wire to the corresponding C type. My hunch is it's just taking the raw bytes sent over the wire and sticking them in this buffer, which is fine. Like, it's a, it's a binary protocol. I'm going with the prepared statement API because I want to transmit everything as binary. Like, that's kind of what I want, but I just wish it were a little more explicit of, like, you're going to receive these four bytes. They're going to be little endian and not, you're going to have a C int behind this. But then elsewhere, you're going to have four bytes and we're not going to tell you whether that's going to be little endian, which is what the wire protocol uses, or whatever native endianness your CPU happens to be, which might be big endian. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to test my implementation against a big endian CPU and also against a chipset which uses 16-bit uh, integers. But I don't have access to either of those right now i guess my phone act well because arm processors are dual endian Ooh, what does that mean it means that they can operate both as little endian and big endian okay but you just have to tell them which way they operate right and you don't do that in c and i actually don't know if just like you if you run some random c code which one it is there's a um assembler instruction that you send that switches it between the two modes uh and then also there's two different interpreter modes for the assembler which is interesting in arm 
ARM's like way more complex than x86. Yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? It's designed more recently for more sure. complex no, no, needs. Yeah, I'm just trying to think if there's a way I could use my phone to test <laughs> this as a big end. I, I just, I don't know if I, if when I run some arbitrary C code or Rust code for that matter, if that, if it'll be a little, I mean, I could always just stick some inline assembler in there to force yeah. it into big endian mode. Yeah, you know, as you do. Yeah. <laughs> as one does on the regular. Of course, it would be much easier for me to just go look at the source code and be like, is this checking whether the CPU is little or big endian and then um, converting if so? And is it ever checking the size of signed int? And that's the thing. It's documented as this has signed int, but elsewhere it's documented as this has four bytes. Those two things cannot both be true. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be true on machines where signed int is four bytes, but that's not guaranteed to be the case. Open an issue? Okay, so I did have. Um, did you did you see that link I sent you earlier this afternoon? I just saw the headline of it. I haven't read. I haven't read through it yet. Okay, so first of all, things that are terrible about MySQL because my first implementation used MySQL Connect. Don't ever use MySQL Connect. MySQL Connect is broken. It just does not work. What is MySQL Connect? It's a function. Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. No, you have to call MySQL Real Connect. Yes. Yeah, these are we were joking about this earlier. There's also like MySQL string escape, MySQL real string escape, MySQL escape string and MySQL real escape string and hilariously MySQL real escape string is no longer the real function to escape strings. Now you're supposed to use MySQL real escape escape string quote. I like to think of quote as the close air quote around that. Right. Like, <laughs> it's referring to the last argument you pass it, but it definitely works as air quotes as well. <laughs> No, so that one of the arguments to uh, MySQL Real Connect is a set of flags. And one of those flags, which I didn't deal with in my initial implementation because it was just I didn't deal with any of the flags in my initial implementation, but it is a client ignore SIGPipe, which is documented as prevents the client library from installing a SIGPipe handler. This can be used to avoid conflicts with a handler that the application has already installed. What's a SIGPipe? It's a signal that you receive when a pipe is broken. Okay. And once I got to the end of this, I realized... Like, all of my questions were kind of dumb to begin with, but I had a little magical journey day. So, you know, I, f I figured, okay, so let's ask the following questions. What does the signal handler that libmySQL client is installing actually do? And is it doing anything that's even useful for diesel applications? How common is it that applications that are using diesel with MySQL, how common is it going to be for them to install their own SIGPipe handlers? Can we detect if a handler has already been installed? And if yes, do we expect people who install those handlers to normally do so before establishing a connection with diesel? So I went to answer the first question. What's the handler that MySQL is installing even doing? So I went and looked at the source, and I just kind of gripped for SIGPipe, and I finally found it. And the answer was it's setting SIGIGN, which is just ignore the signal. Mm -hmm. But I also noticed that it was, this was not in, a, in an if statement. So this parameter means nothing then, basically. Yes. So then my next comment, and, and this, so we'll link to this issue in the show notes, just because I don't know, I think my progression here is a little funny. So then my next comment is, okay, I'm going to git log hyphen s uh, client ignore sig pipe. This is going to take a while. <laughs> it, ju it just searches through all commits to see which ones had that string in their added or removed lines. Okay. And I found a commit from uh, 2011 that removed all the last references to client ignore sig pipe in the code base. So my comment is, this setting appears to be completely useless and or broken since this commit or earlier, but that was the last time it was referenced in MySQL client. MySQL will always clobber the handlers installed for SIGPipe, and we can do nothing about it other than writing a direct wire protocol implementation. <laughs> and then I thought about this for a few minutes, and I was like, wait, actually, this makes sense. Because 
this is a parameter to the connection uh, handler, and a signal handler is a very global thing for your entire application. Of course you wouldn't determine whether or not to install a signal handler per connection. You can have more than one connection. Mm-hmm. But still, they should update the docs and remove this un- like useless define. And also, they should probably not clobber global signal handlers. Just, just saying. <laughs> I like that. You, that is the actual last comment on your issue. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's a reasonable request. Please don't clobber global signal handlers. <laughs> As somebody who's never dealt with global signal handlers or signal handlers, because I've never really written C, it does seem like something you would not want to have happen. Yeah. So I'd love to see why that happened. Something about aborting processes. I don't know. I'm going to try overriding it with the default signal handler and then just see what happens and see if their installation of a ignore handler is even remotely valid. Have we talked about before, are there people choosing MySQL in 2017? I don't know. Uh, I mean... The fact that people are asking for diesel support makes me think they must be. Well, I don't know if you're choosing it in 2017 or living with a choice that was made in 2008. Right. Well, then also the question is, if you are making that choice, is it because you're making that choice or you're making that choice because the databases for all the other applications at your work are also using MySQL? Right. That's what I'm saying. Like like you could, in theory, use Postgres there, but... Are you at like brand new startup and being like, I have good overall knowledge of SQL... I could probably administer MySQL or Postgres, and I'm going to choose MySQL. The only thing I was aware of, and this was as of a couple of years ago, and I don't know if things have changed, but that MySQL replication was much better than Postgres replication. That's kind of still true. Okay. But that, that's a rival. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Postgres is only a year younger than MySQL. Right. Right. We talk about like MySQL's this archaic thing in Postgres is the new hotness. They yeah. are effectively the same age. MySQL was initially released in 94. Postgres was initially released in 95. And it's worth saying, like, MySQL was, when it came out, it was the one everybody wanted to choose, right? It was the def- oh, yeah. it was the default in Rails. It wasn't until, like, recently that, well, recently being maybe since the 4.0 days of Rails that, like, Postgres sort of became the preferred, like... If you use Postgres, you're going to get some extra stuff. Like we're going to support arrays. And oh, we're going to support, sure, yeah, yeah. Like, Rails, Rails properly supporting Postgres came before. I would say people started on mass switching to Postgres several years before that. Yes, I think it was right. just when Postgres started to get to the point. Like when I first started getting seriously into web, like seven years ago or so, MySQL. It was getting to the point where Postgres was a reasonable choice, but MySQL was still the choice just because it was faster. Right. Thinking back to the decisions I got to make, like, I don't know that it was until I came to ThoughtBot where I got to decide what database I was going to use. Like, (laughs) well, I mean, I wasn't making the decisions. I'm just, that was why I was told the decision was made that way. Right. And so I'm thinking to like, do, are there people choosing MySQL? And I don't, I mean, maybe there are, maybe somebody can write in and tell us like all the reasons they continue to use and love MySQL or prefer it anyway. I don't know if they love it or not, but prefer it to, to Postgres, but like just thinking about why like me in a previous job might ask you for support for MySQL. But like most cases, it was just like, that's what my company has chosen to use. And in my case, it wasn't MySQL. It was like, how the hell am I going to get this open source tool to support, you know, SQL Server or Oracle or whatever the case may be. Um, so, you know, MySQL is preferable to them. Like it's nice to be able to run a local database like I could not do with like Oracle. Right. Although I think... There's been some improvements on that front. You can run something that approximates Oracle in a development mode or something. But 
Well, and SQL Server now supports Linux, and I don't know if Mac OS is released yet, but I know that's a thing that's coming soon. Cool. I remember asking some of the database infrastructure team at Shopify once, like, hey, if we could ignore how absurdly difficult and how much of a terrible idea it would be to migrate a production database of this scale, if it could be done for free and we would be magically assured that it worked and our code was all migrated properly, would you guys still choose MySQL over Postgres? And they gave me a few reasons. I don't remember most of them. I do remember one of them was replication, but I also looked into one of their claims and it was false. Not false like they were lying, but false was in like outdated. I know one thing that has historically been an issue for a lot of people with Postgres. I know Uber in particular wrote a blog post about them switching to MySQL because of this. Oh. Was that Postgres hasn't always had the best story for uh, switching from version X to version Y. That's more or less solved with Postgres 9.x, but I know that historically was a, a concern for a lot of people. And that's part of why like MySQL has so many terrible things is because there is no MySQL upgrade, right? You just, the old databases work still. Yeah, I guess I haven't really like, in the apps I'm using now, we're talking about like hosted Postgres, right? And somebody handles that concern for me. Although right. their handling of that concern likely involves like, I back the database up, I take the database offline, I restore the database to the new version. Well, that's the naive way to do it. I mean, right. like upgrading your Postgres version is in a lot of ways like updating an index over whatever your most populated table is. Right. There are ways to do it and assume and let's assume that your traffic is high enough that concurrent update will never complete. Right. Like there are ways to do that without downtime, but they're going to be complex. Let's take a quick break to talk about today's sponsor. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. I know that so many of you out there are freelancers or independent contractors because our working world is changing. It wasn't too long ago that being self-employed was something odd or weird. But now the nature of work is changing. The internet has enabled more people to become self-employed professionals and small business owners. Today, one in three Americans is self-employed, and the tools we use to manage this just aren't keeping up. But the folks at FreshBook have your back. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. You can set up online payments, so your people can pay you with just a couple of clicks, and you'll get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to guessing games. The most important thing for everyone listening is that getting started on FreshBooks is extremely simple, even if you're not a numbers person, or especially if you're not a numbers person. You can use FreshBooks to manage the parts of your business that you just don't want to deal with. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com bike and enter the bike shed and how did you hear about us section. Our thanks again to FreshBooks for sponsoring today's show. You were talking about changing index on your like most populated table, and that reminded me of a thing that Justin and Josh and I were talking about on the project we're working on now. So we're writing this project that isn't in production yet. It's on Rails 501. And I was looking at the schema because like, one of the things I like to do every once in a while is go through the schema and make sure things make sense. Like, are there indexes where I expect there to be? Are there foreign keys? Like, things like that. And I was looking at it, and then I, was, I had like a, a remembrance back to our conversation about Rails 5.1 and being like, oh, in my, you know, migrations are now going to create big int primary keys by default. 
Yep. And I was like, okay, well, we're not in production yet. So this would be a really painless change for us to do. Like, we don't need to worry about anything. So like, maybe we should just go ahead and bite the bullet and make our primary keys big int. But then I started thinking about like, when is the right time to do that, right? Like maybe, like if Rails 5.1 is just around the corner, maybe we just wait. Because if we do it now, right? And we say like, we're gonna make all of our primary keys big int now. That's now something we have to review every time a migration comes through and be like, did you, is this, is this big int? Right? Or we have to write a tool that like combs through, which might actually be pretty easy to do. I don't know, like write some sort of perhaps rake thing that gets kicked off by a rake task that we can put in our default rake or something that looks at the schema and says like, what's the type of the ID column? And if it's not big int, then raise an error. Isn't there a setting that you can set in Rails 5.0 that is the default type of the primary key? That's what I was going to ask if there was a thing. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't know off the top of my head, but like there are people who do UUID primary keys and I'm pretty sure they just have a setting that that they set that makes it always always do that for migrations like okay. that's a thing i mean i giving that answer because i don't know off the top of my head but that's a lot easier to google <laughs> okay you know I will, what i mean i will then google that because that was gonna be my question was like oh i wish that this was a thing that we could do today like we could just say like hey migrations just use this as a type and that makes sense that there are people who use uid and would have this problem and would have to like know to every time a migration comes along to like be like okay is it using the right type for the id column you know, I mean, you'll have to you'll have to continue reviewing those migrations until Rails 5.1 is released, just because your old migrations won't change, right? Because they're they inherit from migration 5.0. Right, but we would write one migration that changed them all, right? At, right at the at that time, and then oh sure, yeah. I, I mean, that I think migration would check in. Oh, that's probably fine to do, honestly. I wonder if that would make the mig old migrations unrunnable, though. Like, I wonder what the change column type will do if the if the column is already of that type. The old column won't have changed because the old migrations won't change in behavior ever because they inherit from migration 5.0. But they will in if I do this today in Rails 5. Oh. If I change a configuration option, right? Because that configuration option is present right. at that point. Yeah, but I don't... I don't I, think I, I care. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I care that I, I was can't saying, run the I was saying failing that migration option. Right. Or that configuration option, which actually, now that I think about it, we wouldn't have... It's probably a gem is what people use for that because now that I think about it, we wouldn't add that migration option because we or that configuration option because we don't add configuration options that change the meaning of existing migrations. Right. It might be it might be a config option for the generator, if anything. That would probably be fine. Uh, no, because I don't I, I don't know. Maybe people. I think we've talked about this before. The only generator I ever use is migration, and I never I just give it a name, and then I handwrite everything else inside. Maybe I'm being a luddite, but. I only use the model generator because I want the migration generator, but then it's like, oh, also it'll give me a belongs to line. Yeah, if you pass the arguments, which I never remember the format of or anything like that. So I just go, eh, forget it. I'll just write it. I know how to write a create table statement or a change table or a whatever I need to do. Yeah, I don't know. The migrations for diesel are SQL files, and I'm feeling pretty happy with that. Yeah. So far. Yeah. Coworker Paul here has been doing a lot of like playing around with Crystal, and he was talking about making a migration library. And I was like, you, you should just use SQL. Like... <laughs> I mean, you. Could, I mean, there's still a lot of value in a migration library where the migration library manages SQL files. Right. Yes, that's what I was saying. You should just use like uh, an up yeah. and a down. I mean, like, there's a huge benefit to having a DSL for manipulating schema for testing an ORM, <laughs> where you need to have a schema that is the same across multiple backends because you're running a test suite against multiple backends. But like. Right. Which essentially at that point you have a fixture. So you just take that fixture and you'd be like, here's this fixture in MySQL. Here's this fixture in Postgres. Here's this fixture in SQLite or whatever. 
Yeah, but the syntax for creating a table differs a surprising yes. amount between those three. Right, so you'd have to create three versions of that or however many oh, versions yeah. you're going to support, which is kind right. of a bummer, but... I mean, there's a handful of places where I'm creating... Like, yes, I could, I could have separate files for each of these. On, and for, like, the integration test suite canonical, here's the, the schema, I do just have migration directories for each one because that's also how we go about testing our migration infrastructure, uh, which could be more thorough, but... Like MVP for testing migration infrastructure, use your migration infrastructure for testing everything else. Um, But I do have a few places where I'm modifying schema on the fly to test just other stuff. And um, I need to create like a bunch of arbitrary tables. And specifically, it's being done in a few places where it's not inside of a transaction. Yeah. So the point of that is like the tables then have to have a unique name per test because they don't want to clobber each other. It was actually less code for me to write a little... It's a terrible DSL. But it's only ever going to be used internally, so it doesn't... Right, it's, it's only ever used internally, and it handles, like, three things, and that's it. But, like, it was actually a little... It was just less code for me to write that than it was to write separate fixture files, and also the code... Well, I wouldn't need code to include the fixture files, but it was less code to write that than to write separate fixture files for every backend for, like, these 20 one-off tables that are only ever used in that one place. Right. That sums up the problems with having a DSL, right? It's like, because you start off, I'm only supporting these few things. And then you go like, okay, I actually need to support these 10 things. Okay. So like Rails is at the point where it's, it is your little crappy DSL, but it just supports a lot more things, right? Yeah. And it's just more, increasingly more work anytime anybody wants to support something else. Yep. The only argument I've ever seen for a DSL that I don't think is bullshit is that you get down for free, which is, is valid. But I think mm. it's kind of a weak argument. Also, you get like you get down for free when you're creating a table. If you're doing anything right. more than that, it's really hard to get down for free. <laughs> like right. there are other things, I guess. Like if you change null from false to true or whatever, you can get that for free by using change column null. And all of the change column stuff you can get down for free as long as you're also passing the existing value to these functions. But then at that point, it's like okay, yeah, that you've made this no less work. Right. I mean, maybe marginally less work than if you wrote the down yourself. And you've made it, like, complicated because you have, like, maybe you have, like, remove column, right? And that's reversible if you provide the type of the column. And you're like, why am I providing the type? And also the default, and also whether it's null, and also whether it's index. Why am I providing this to remove column? Oh, because you want it to be reversible. It's just like, unless I'm doing a create table at this point, I just assume I'm going to be writing it up up and down. Right. And literally the easiest down to write is drop table. (laughs) (laughs) It's drop table foo. You don't need a DSL to remember how to do that. I do have a little bit of a DSL that I provide in Diesel's migrations. And that is when Diesel sets up its migration infrastructure, it also creates a stored procedure to manage the updated at column for you because I can never remember the syntax for setting up a trigger. Ah, so we instead provide a function called diesel manage updated at where you pass it the table name as an argument and it sets up the trigger to <laughs> set the updated at column to now if any field in that row was changed and the updated at field was not changed. All right. Well, that seems reasonable. And then I, I might eventually add more helper functions. So I might have a little bit of a DSL that's in SQL that we provide. Does MySQL support triggers? MySQL does support triggers. Yes. Okay. Uh, SQLite kind of does. And stored procedures are literally, you give it a C function, so I need to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. The little helper function will be in MySQL support when it ships. It's not in SQLite right now, and I don't think it ever will be. But yeah, MySQL supports triggers. It doesn't, I've got a spike where I wrote what I'm pretty sure the helper function is, and I haven't actually tested it yet, mostly because the Postgres one is very Postgres-y. 
right. is, is not distinct from all over the place. Right. That's about, actually about the only postgressy thing about it. But yeah, I just wrote like a lot of migrations last week and I was thinking about this a lot. And just, like I even tried in a couple places where I was like, no, no, most of these statements are reversible. So if I do this in the right order, if I do like these two statements and then I give it the reversible do block in the middle of change. So like that's something that yep. came in like four one, I think, or something like that, or maybe four oh, where you can say like in this section in change, if you do reversible do, then it yields a direction back. And then you can say like dir up. And you tell it what to do when you're going when you're actually going up. It's it's like defining up and down in the middle of your change method. Right. And well, and there's also reverse do so that if you are just defining down yourself, you just write the code you would have written in up and then it gives you. Uh... <laughs> right. right. And you can also like um, when you actually need to like reverse an old migration, like a migration that already existed and you want to roll it back, you can actually provide like the class name and say and call down on that or reverse. Maybe I forget. But that's pretty fun. But yeah, anyway, when I was when I was experimenting with reversible. It was just like every single time I tried it like four different times over the span of like three days. I was writing a ton of migrations, getting rid of a bunch of polymorphism in the application that we didn't need anymore. Like polymorphic relationships, not not object oriented polymorphism. Right. That's a good thing. Right. But uh, I kept trying it and trying it and then being like, this is awful. I just need to write up and down. <laughs> like, why do I keep trying this? <laughs> just write the up and the down. And then at that point, I ended up with things where like part of what I was doing is I was changing in the up migration. I would take the existing foreign key. What all I wanted to do was say, like, also make it on cascade delete or whatever, whatever the syntax is for that, right? Or on delete cascade, I guess is what you pass. And so in the up migration, I what you do is say, like, remove foreign key foo bar. And then you say add foreign key foo bar on delete cascade. Mm -hmm. And then in the down migration to reverse that, you, you do this weird, you, you say, Remove foreign key foo bar. Add foreign key foo bar. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what are you doing? And, and I have to explain like <laughs> this one had a on delete cascade, and the next one when you create it without that, then it create it just looks. To be fair, that would be no less weird in raw SQL. Yes, it, that is true. It's just like every time I see it in a migration that's being reviewed, I'm like, oh, this looks silly. But what is really nice, and when I use structure.sql on projects, which is just a SQL dump of things, and you lose, is the diff. Like, to be able to see, like, I ran this migration, and here was its impact on the schema. Right, right. When I say I don't like the migration DSL, that does not apply to schema.rb. Schema.rb is cool. <laughs> it's cool with you? Schema.rb is fine, because, like, it's got a good argument for it. it. It's easier to review diffs. It's easier to review diffs. And we have more control over the output than we do over structure.sql, which is kind of important. Right. Structure.sql is totally like we, the project we worked on together. We had structure.sql and it. We eventually were just like, let's get ignore this because it's useless. Yeah. We have no control over what's in there. We subshell out to third right. party tools. Right. So do you think it's reasonable then to have migrations built around running SQL and then a schema dumper that exists solely for documentation purposes? That is exactly what we have in diesel right now. All right. Like our schema dumper doesn't run by default and it's brand new in the most recent version, but it's now CLI subcommand. It's diesel print hyphen schema. Right. And then you would just know as like a user of diesel, like this is not authoritative, right? Well, but... it's meant to be if you want it to be authoritative, if you want to not use our infer schema, because we have the, the, the macro that like goes and looks at your schema at compile time and, and then generates all the code for you. And this is kind of meant to be used if you don't. I mean, it could also be for documentation purposes, which is fine, too, because mm -hmm. it, it, we do not provide any mechanism to then, given this statement, go generate the database schema. Right. But if you don't want to use that macro, you can point at this file right. and say you can. 
right? Yeah, right. You instead just instead of where you would call in for a schema, you instead put the output of this CLI command. And the CLI command is just literally what it would have expanded to. But you do that knowing that there may be some things that the DSL doesn't support dumping, right? Like Right, exactly. And that's right. why and that's why we don't like one of the things that we don't have any knowledge of because the ORM doesn't need to care about this is default field values. So okay. we don't dump that at all. Right. And so that's that's part of why we don't give you any way to go from this to a database schema because we're not going to care about so everything. So diesel the doesn't does. care. Diesel's ORM layer part doesn't care about default values whereas active record does, right? So like if I call active record, right. If I call post.new and I have a default, I don't know, something on there, it gets populated on post.new. Right. And and we take the stance of cool. So if you want that, you say you're either going right. to give me a value for that or not. And then when we actually get the value back, which is what the database said, and here's what I wrote to the table, we just add returning star right. on Postgres because neither MySQL nor SQLite support that. And then it's like, and on MySQL and SQLite, if you want that, Select. go query the database because, yep. yeah. I like that. So that's one that's, there's maybe more of an argument for an ORM caring about that, but like foreign keys, indexes. Do not even remotely affect an ORM. There's no reason that we should care about that. There's no reason really schema.rb needs to contain those. Well, I mean, I care about it, right? I was just saying, I I look at them for both of those things, right? To see, like, is there a foreign key on this table? If we delete this, what's going to happen? And I could just as easily go into psql and do a describe, right? But it's just so easy to do. And it's so easy to do as to see the results of any migrations that anybody wrote. Be like, oh. Let's just write a CLI tool that like isn't tied to any language or stack that's like, hey, you're a developer and, and here are common questions you're asking about your database that provides answers in a, in an easier to to access and easier to digest format than Yeah. There's no need it needs to be a Ruby file. It's just like here's a dump of your database in a predictable, repeatable format that like We'll give I'm not you a even saying it's like diff. part of schema.rb. I'm just saying it's like, is right. this column indexed properly? Oh, okay. Like just as a CLI, like when you have those questions to ask. I don't know that those need to be documented as a file that's committed in the repo. Yeah. I do think that the schema, like the schema in a predictable format that is resistant to diff churn is a useful thing to have committed to the repo. Even if it can't be used to generate the database schema, it's useful just to have as like, here's what your schema is expected to look like. And then you generate that by running your migrations. Okay. Yeah. And I do think that if your migrations are raw SQL files, the whole like you should run schema load, not migration, DB migrate problem kind of goes away. It might be slower, but your migrations should continue to work until the end of time, especially if they're raw SQL files. That's how everybody else got their schema to where it is. Right. Exactly. And you don't have to worry about referencing class names in your, <laughs> right. in your migrations because you can't do that. One of the things I'm torn on is whether or not one-off data migration things should go in migrations. I have this debate with people all the time. For me, it's often hard to divorce one-off data migration from schema change because they're usually right. they're usually they're related. often tied. Right. In which case, I just do it in the migration unless there's like a significant uptime concern or something like that. Then we'll do the thing where like, oh, we introduce the new column, slowly populate the new column, and then in another migration, we drop the old column or something like that. Right. It's funny. Steve was actually asking me about this the other day, which was just like, hey, what's the story for for deploying a thing that has migrations, um, which is especially important for diesel because diesel compiles your schema into the binary. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's actually kind of the same as, as Rails, although I'm trying to push people more towards always doing the thing that doesn't involve downtime, right? Because there's two questions to ask. First is, is the migration changing something or is it additive only? Right. And if it's additive only, doesn't matter. Make sure that you've run the migration before the new binary is deployed. 
right? Because your old binary will work against the new schema. And if it's changing something, then then it's a multi-step process where first you have to come up with a version of that migration that is additive only, potentially with triggers or whatnot to update, you know, to have like the both states sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you deploy the new binary that works with both. And then you remove the old and then you deploy the new binary that only works with the new. Right. I, I like the world I live in where I often deal with apps that don't have these concerns. <laughs> right. If you can just have downtime, everything's really simple. Right. It's like, yeah, whatever. Just change the schema. Make it make it happen. Yeah. Do it at, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, 10.30 p.m. Eastern or something. Yeah. Certainly a nicer world to live in. Easier world to live in. But so my sequel's been like, I've drank a lot this week. <laughs> but I was also really pleased because the only code I've had to touch that was not MySQL specific was when I changed all of our default integer serialization, deserialization code to be from assume it's big endian to ask the backend whether it's big or little endian. And when I say ask the backend, it's a compile time constant. But, you know, so I changed that to be a generic thing. That's the only line of code I've had to touch that wasn't MySQL specific, which was really reassuring. And then also, other than some test stuff, uh, and almost all of the test stuff has been a combination of MySQL implicitly commits the current transaction if you modify schema, which is terrible because like we need to modify schema in transactions to test what happens with different schemas. Right. And then it's been a combination of that and integer literals in MySQL are always 8-bit integers, not 4-bit integers like everything else, which I actually think is fine. Like I'm down with integer literals being big integer, but when I say cast X as integer... Integer in MySQL means a four-byte integer. So when I say cast X as integer, cast it to a goddamn four-byte integer. <laughs> and I haven't looked into it yet, but I think it's possible that numeric operations like division and multiplication and whatnot on integer columns might actually return a type of big integer, which is different from other backends, which would be, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that if that's the case. But like, all in all, I was very reassured. SQLite took a lot of work to add. SQLite went from we are building a thing that is for Postgres to we are building a thing that is for N backends. And it's been very reassuring that the result of that was and adding an nth backend involves just adding that nth backend. And one of the things I did as part of this was um, so there's two ways you can you can I'm actually going to do a similar change to Rails, I think. So there are two ways you can go get schema information in Postgres. Mm-hmm. You can go ask all of the PG underscore tables. Or there's an ANSI standard called Information Schema, okay. which every database except for Oracle, DB2, and SQLite adheres to. And it's just a set of views that exist that have almost all of the information you want. Huh. And when I say almost all, uh, the one piece that's missing is the type of the column in a useful way for applications. But then everything just has a non-ANSI additional column on informationschema.columns that has what exactly what you want. And so like you just have to vary on what's that column called. Awesome. So um, I refactored the Postgres schema inference code in Diesel to just entirely ba- be based off of information schema. And then adding MySQL support for Diesel CoGen was literally just a few CFG lines that are like, MySQL can exist. If MySQL is enabled, try to use MySQL. And then one place say, and by the way, the column type column for MySQL is called column type. And then, and then that was it, and it just worked. And so that was, like, all that was, it was just, it was very reassuring that, like, this abstraction that I built for N things but hadn't tested against N things, with one exception, worked fine. And, yeah, assuming all databases were network Indian was an oversight on my part. 
and that's been fixed. That so, and and I expect every time some me or somebody else adds support for a new backend, there will probably be an assumption somewhere that I made that it doesn't hold when you increase n to n plus one. But like, that's pretty good. Like, yeah. in terms of the amount of work it could take, that's a that's pretty good. Yeah. So that'll be good. And people have been like kind of banging at the doors for my SQL support. I wanted to have it in the last release, but like. It's funny because I'm finishing it around the time I was planning to finish it because I thought I had an extra week or so before Rust 1.15 came out. And I knew I was going to release on the day that Rust 1.15 released because that was when Diesel worked on stable Rust. And so I needed to have a release out for that, especially because we were like mentioned prominently in the release announcement from from Rust. Uh, and so I just got I got my dates mixed up. and I thought I had another week to finish my SQL support because I wanted to then like piggyback on the publicity from diesel works on stable rust to then be, and also diesel supports my SQL. Yeah. That that didn't pan out because troll baby came a month (laughs) and a half early. Troll baby came a month and a half early and I couldn't get my dates figured out in time. So, (laughs) you know, people will have to deal. They'll just have to wait. They'll just have to use Postgres. Oh, how horrible. (laughs) Speaking of releases, when uh when when's Rails five one gonna be uh gonna be coming out? Uh, one sec. I want it. I want it now. I want this big int primary key thing. I want the yarn support. Like as I was saying before, we want to move to big int just because we know it's coming and we can do it while it's while there's like no production problems for us in doing that. And then we already have like yarn involved in the project for development dependencies that we use, like ESLint and things like that. And today somebody added another JavaScript dependency and was like, you know, should we just should we just add this dependency to Yarn rather than like vendoring the file or using a Ruby gem or something like that? And I was like, yes, yes, we should. Uh, I would like to see what the Rails pattern for this is. And we'll just do that now in 5.0. And, I was, and then people were asking, when is 5.1 coming anyway? Beta is in nine days. And then RC will be about a month after that. De- modulo issues with beta. And then final will be about a month after that. Modulo issues with RC. All right, that gives me a good idea of that, you know, where things are at. Oh my god, I was like in GitHub issue mode today. Um, after did I tell you about the whole thing with the GitHub issue that the person opened and the rabbit hole that led to, and the RFC that I had to write as a result of it? No. So just I was I was trying to finish this MySQL thing, which was basically split this function that is shared between MySQL and Postgres into two functions, so that I can add an if string is int change string to integer and remove the strip trailing parentheses stuff from Postgres. Because that's a MySQL specific thing. And, and I was working on that, and then somebody opened an issue that was like, hey, I have this bug, but I had fixed that bug on master. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, I should release a patch version that has that bug fix. It's kind, of, it's kind of a serious bug, and I was really pissed that this made it in. And then um, Pascal, the other core team member, was like, oh, by the way, while you're doing this, do you want to include uh, these version bumps that we did for these dependencies? Because they seem pretty benign. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And I was looking at them, and one of them was a change from 0.2.0 to 0.3.0 and not greater than equal to 0.2.0 less than 0.4.0. So I'm like, I can't do that one because that's a breaking change. And one of the things we're talking about right now is we want to go 1.0 in the next three months probably. So one of the things we're talking about is like, what's our plan? What's our roadmap? What are our blockers? And so he then raised the question, so what are we going to do about some of these dependencies if whenever they update, if they have breaking changes, which they can do whenever they feel like because they're 0.x dependencies, if that's a breaking change? Because we don't want to go diesel 2.0 because the date time library that we support deserialization for updated. And I was like, 
I don't actually know. Let me consult uh, RFC 1105, which is the Rust RFC that describes what is or isn't a server-breaking change for Rust libraries. And then it turned out that it didn't mention it at all. So then I spent like three hours drafting an RFC to amend 1105 with guidelines for Rust libraries on when changing the version of a dependency is or isn't a breaking change. And I never finished that MySQL thing. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't really want to change it anyway. I, I, I no. And then I and then I was tweeting people about how funny it was that I didn't do that so I wouldn't have to work on the MySQL thing. <laughs> No, but then I, I got I kind of got into GitHub issue mode after that. So I was going through GitHub notifications, and I started clicking on the Rails notifications, and a bunch of them were just people being angry at me for not reviewing their pull requests. <laughs> I'm just like, sorry, I'm on leave. <laughs> like I don't like this isn't even like oh I'm sorry I have too much other stuff because open source. This is just literally I had a baby. Sorry, that's an inconvenience to you. <laughs> They'll get over it. It'll be okay. No, I know. I just I don't know. It was funny. Like, I get those all the time anyway, but it's more funny to me now than it is normally. Now that you have, like, almost the excuse to end all excuses. There are other excuses that are up there with it, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like that. Yes, this is funny to me. Yes, that is funny. I agree. <laughs> yes, I see the humor in that. It is very funny. <laughs> it's like those old commercials. There, Never mind. It's a really old commercial. I'm not going to say it. Uh, it wouldn't have been funny. Um, <laughs> Older than BOS and OS2. No, not that old. <laughs> Why did you bring up BOS and OS2? <laughs> I, I'll send you the link to the tweet. Gary uh, Bernhardt was like, shout out to any uh, open source projects that, that are still referencing BOS and OS2 in their homepage. And so I added a, <laughs> a version of, of Diesel's website that referenced BOS and OS2 in the first paragraph on the homepage and sent him a link. And a couple of people didn't get the joke and did some funny subtweets. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. I'll send you a link after. Okay, sounds good. Should we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Okay. Show notes for this episode we've had at bikeshed.fm slash 99. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Bring.